Well, I think uh, we've already heard the best message that we could ever hear this morning, hearing Bobby, his wife, and his family share their testimony. It's better than any message we can come up with this morning. I love hearing the works of God, how God works in people's lives and changes them. That's what it's all about, isn't it? That's why we're here, and to learn how to have a better walk with the Lord. I uh, always stand amazed at how God pulls things together. Uh, Daniel, I, uh, it's almost like I got with you this weekend and went over my message, told you I wanted to share, and then said, would you come up with an opening for that? Um, it just makes me amazed. Um, but that's how God does things, you know. Standing in the mirror, looking at ourselves, wondering, what am I seeing? Am I seeing God's reflection? Am I seeing my reflection? Uh, I'll talk about this morning. It's actually get into the first two commandments that God gave man. Title of the message is, is it him is, his image or yours? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just want to praise you and thank you this morning for the many rich blessings you give to us. I thank you, Lord, for the testimonies that we heard this morning of Jesus Christ still having the power to save the souls of men. Father, we thank you for that. Lord, may each and every one of us just humble our hearts before you. Would you break the bread of life to us and feed us today? Challenge us. Stretch our hearts and our minds towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, is it safe to say that that's one of the biggest battles going on in the world today? You look at the news and you hear all the things going on. Leaders taking over leaders, leaders rising, leaders coming down, nations being destroyed, wars, and all these things. And yet I think that's a distraction to what's really going on when you look at this here. That's the important thing. It doesn't matter which nation can be stronger than another nation or, you know, which leader can uh, get away with the most things. But the reality is, where's the hearts of men of God? But you know, this battle's been going on for over 6,000 years. And the battle for souls, sin separated man from God. And man, can I say, couldn't touch God. And God couldn't reach down and touch man. There was a big gap that came after the fall in the garden between holiness and perfection and unrighteousness and depravity of mankind. And the price for God, God put it this way, God couldn't forgive man without a price. And it was a price that man could never afford. So God made a way to fix the situation, to help man. God, bought Christ down to this world to give his life, to pay that price. So that man could now have access back to God. Christ paid it all. He paid for all the sins of mankind. He paid for the redemption of man. Complete forgiveness. Complete salvation. And that relationship that was destroyed between God and man could now be repaired. Even though Jesus Christ paid for the sins of the whole world, he paid for the sins of every man on earth, every woman on earth, every child on earth. But there's still a problem there. There's still a problem there. Even though Jesus paid it all, and God looked down and says, I'm satisfied with the blood of Christ. 
I'm satisfied with what Christ did, and because of Christ, I will not impute sins upon man. But I can give him a clear record, and that sin that he committed, I can completely wipe away and turn man back to perfection and holiness. But all men and women and children are not safe from God's destruction. You see, God did his part. He provided salvation. He provided a way for man. The blood of Jesus Christ. But there's still an issue. If man is not willing to humble himself, to accept, to repent, to believe in the redemption that God gave through Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ is of no effect. His, still, his sin will still remain on him, and he's in a lost state before God. God did his part by providing. He provided a way through Christ to repair that relationship so that man can escape, as we heard this morning, the fear of, I've done wrong before God, I'm going to hell, I won't make it. And he provided a way that that fear can be taken away. And we could turn and say, thank you, God. I'm forgiven. My conscience is clear. And I can go to heaven. God provided his part. Man's part is to repent, to believe, and accept by faith. God's always going to do his part. But man has to do his part. Now, I want to think about this for a little bit this morning. Why don't you imagine with me if you can. Just kind of dream with me a little bit. As I thought about this message and over the last several weeks, you know, one thing is, you know, as you start studying something in the Bible and it gets a little bit bigger and gets bigger and bigger. Well, this thing got really huge real quick. So I realized I've just got to narrow my thoughts down here. But just imagine this morning, go back before the Garden of Eden, go back before the creation of the world, before anything was made, and just imagine what it could have been like. I don't know. But as I thought about this and thought about this, I'm trying to picture just... Utterly nothing out there. Absolutely, positively nothing. Just trillions and trillions of miles of absolute nothing. Is it dark? Complete darkness? Cold? I don't know. But void of any particle. Just simply nothing there whatsoever. Kind of hard to imagine. But I believe there was a time when there was positively nothing that existed that exists today. And yet... There was still something there. God was there. Somehow, some way, in a way that we don't quite understand, there was a point where there was absolutely nothing made that was made, but there was God. That's the only thing that existed. There was nothing else. And then you think of what God shared with Job at one point. God stretched out a line, and he put it across the blank nothingness. He put a dimension in there. And God says that he actually set the foundations of the earth. And he also made unknown millions and millions of miles of galaxies and stars and planets, black holes, just filled the universe far beyond what man's ever going to find with things out there. And then God took the earth without form and he somehow set it on its axis right where it belongs. He put it there perfectly just the way he wanted it. And then he created the heavens and the earth and the light and the darkness. He created the heat and the cold. We heard about that in the children's lesson. The mountains, the prairies, 
the seas, the rivers, the lakes. God created the trees, the grass, the fish. He created the days that we have. He created time, the skies, the clouds, the rain, the snow, the hail. And God made all these things. And without God, there was nothing made on this earth that wasn't made by him completely. And God looked down at everything he created and he said, well, this is good. He made everything out of absolutely nothing. It was his design, his perfect work, and God's fingerprints are on everything. It doesn't matter how far man goes. And at this point, everything obeyed God the way he wanted it to. The trees, the grass, the animals, chickens were chickens, cows were cows, grass was grass. Everything simply obeyed God the way he made it. And they couldn't do otherwise. Everything was according to God's perfect design. Everything obeyed God and it glorified God. But God wanted to do something. He could make anything do what he wanted. He could make angels to worship him. He could make the earth to respond perfectly the way it does. But he wanted to create something that would obey him out of his own will. Something that would say, God, I love you. And God, I want to follow you, follow you out of their own choice. That wanted a robot that would do everything. He could do that. But he made a creature. That's us. That's where we come into play. God created us, not for our glory, not to look at this world and say, this is mine, I can do what I want with, but he created us to look at everything and say, God, I love you, and God, I want to be part of you, and I want to follow you. We'll look over in Genesis chapter 1 for a moment. It says here in verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God says, Let us make man in our image. Did you catch that? He says this, that's important. He says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowls of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God created he, male and female, created he them. And God blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living creature that moveth upon the earth. So God basically created this world, and then he made man, and he put him down there, and he said, here, the world's yours. But he didn't give it to us to see what we could make of ourselves. He didn't give it to us to see how good we could do and lift ourselves up and be proud. He gave us this world to show that God would provide for us and that we would glorify him in that. God also gave man rules. And what I want to focus on this morning, like I said, is just the first two commandments that God gave to man. Exodus chapter 20. Obviously, this is after the fall of man. Man sinned. God had put him out of the garden. 
uh, kind of jumping in here with the commandments that God gave the Israelites. I'm going to explain more of that in just a few minutes. But um, it says, Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these, thing, all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have bought thee out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I am the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto the thousands of them that love me. Keep my commandments. So God gives these commandments. There's more. I want to stop there. Just look at the first two. The first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. When you look at what we just thought about, why did God have to put this one in there? Is there other gods to choose from? Is there other options? Was there several? If a man is saying, God says, okay, you know, I want you to pick me. You know, we just looked at those things. There's one God, one Lord, one Father of all, one faith, one baptism. There's just one. And God puts this in here. If it wasn't for God, there would be nothing. You see, God is the only God and there is no other. God didn't have to win the authority of this world. It's not like there's a universe out there and God went in and battled and took it over and now he's the victor and there's an option of something else passed there. It all started from him. It's not like this world, God saw something going on and took it over and said, now I'm God. I want you to just obey me. That's not what happened. God's the creator of all things, but he put this in here because he knows the hearts of the man that he created when he gave man his own will. God didn't win the authority. He is the authority. He owns everything. Everything was made by him. And God deserves worship and praise for that. When we make up a God, it's spiritual adultery. We're committing adultery against the God who created everything. A lot of people think, why do I have to obey God? Why do I got to follow his rules? The Bible's getting torn apart in this world anymore. Why do I got to do these things? Okay? It's all God's. We were created to worship him. We don't have an option. But because of our will, God was looking for someone that say, I want to do it by choice. Okay? What's a... F- um, when we find something that we love more than we love our relationship with God, it becomes a God to us. It doesn't matter what it is. This world's full of gods. It's full of things that we can worship. Okay? There's so many things out there, lands, cars, um, position, money, lusts, electronics, sports. The list goes on and on of all these things that we can actually make into a God by simply making it more important than the one true God. Because we're put here to worship the God of heaven and serve him and love him and not come to this world to find the things that we want to do and please ourselves. The second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow thyself down to them nor serve them. Now when you look at that, to me it seems kind of crazy to take something from this earth, make it into something you want to, 
and then turn around and make it greater than you and say, this is the God that I'll follow. To me, it makes no sense. But it happens over and over. We're going to look and go through here in the Old Testament of God's people. And it didn't stop there. I go into homes all the time and you still see these gods made up of stuff in people's homes. But to make something up and say, this is a God and serve it, doesn't make any sense. Man can choose to serve and worship the one and only true God, or man can choose to worship his own God. There was an older couple, and uh, they had a home, and there was a house across the way from them, and a young couple, just married newlyweds, moved into this home. And one morning, they were sitting there drinking their coffee, and I looked out the window, and the uh, young lady was bringing out her laundry that she just washed, and she's hanging it up outside. And she's putting the laundry up, and his wife looks out, and she says, Harold, look at that laundry. It's dirty. It's got spots all over it. Didn't anybody teach her any better? Doesn't she know any better than this? Well, anyway, she hung up her laundry and took it in later. Well, the next week, they're up drinking their coffee, and they look out the window, and sure enough, she comes out with the laundry again and starts to hang a laundry up on the line. And as she's putting the laundry up, the wife looks out the window and she goes, Well, Harold, I guess you learned her lesson. The laundry's all nice and clean. I wonder what happened. Maybe somebody said something to her. And the husband looked at his wife and said, Sweetheart, I got up this morning and washed your windows. <laughs> How's your vision this morning? How are we really seeing? I know I wear these things, these glasses, and sometimes at work, the things that I do, they start getting all splattered up, and I don't realize that all of a sudden I'm driving down the road, and I go, I can't see very well. got all these spots all over them, you know, and got to take them off and clean them off. But what about your spiritual vision? How do you see God? How do you see the Word of God? Is your vision of God spotted by the world or your own theologies? Do you clearly see the righteousness of God, his righteous image? Or do you see God in the image that you created? What's our vision this morning? God has never changed, and God will never change. With God, there's no variableness, and there's no shadows of turning. God's perfect in all ways. God doesn't change, but man is unstable in all of his ways. Man changes. Man can choose to follow God, and man can choose to not follow God. And sometimes man can choose to follow God and like a squirrel, no, back and forth, and he finally needs to make a decision. I'm going to keep following the ways of the world and my flesh, or I'm going to follow the Lord. I want to look at a story this morning in the Bible about the Israelites. And uh, it's in Exodus chapter 4. And I'm going to kind of go through this could take a long time here, but we'll kind of take maybe a fast path track here. But God wanted to create for himself a people on the earth that would worship him and follow his ways and be his image. The Israelites. And the Israelites at this point were in bondage. 400 years were in bondage. And they begin to cry out to God and they say, we don't like what's going on. We're in bondage here. We want to get free. 
and God hears their cries. So God finally brings Moses to come, and Moses is a long story there, but um, Moses grows up. We know what happened to Moses. He kind of had maybe in his own mind of how he wanted to help the people, and he ended up killing one of the Egyptians, and he runs off, and he's out in the wilderness there for about 40 years, and, and finally God stops him at the burning bush, and God begins to work with Moses and kind of... Uh, let Moses know, hey, you're going to be the one to go to Pharaoh. Moses is very unsure. Remember the time when uh, he uh, takes, uh, tells him what's in your hand? And he says, a rod. He goes, throw it on the ground. And it turned into a serpent. And apparently it didn't just lay there. That thing probably got kind of fiery because Moses took off. God says, it's okay, come on back. And he comes back there and God says, now pick it up. <laughs> Test of faith. So Moses picks up the serpent, turns back into his rod, he puts his hand comes out leprous, God says, do it again, he comes back healed. And Moses believed. Moses wanted to follow God, and Moses did. So, um, finally, God tells Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh and see if you can have him let the people go. So Moses calls Pharaoh to get together, and uh, Moses comes up to Pharaoh, and he drops his rod on the ground and turns into a serpent. Well, Pharaoh turns around and he says, well, gets together with his enchanters and his magicians and they talk about it and they say, okay. And they walk out with their rods and throw them down. And they turn into a serpent, same thing. But God's serpent turns around and gobbles them up. Now, normally, if you know anything about snakes, I know very little, but if they go over and they find something large they're going to eat, it takes them a long time. And after they're done, they don't go anywhere. They kind of just stay there till a few days anyway. But apparently this snake goes through and he gobbles up all their serpents pretty quickly. And then Moses grabs this bag into a rod. And the Egyptians looked and said, wow, we can do something, but God won. Now, the next plague, God sends them down again, goes through uh, Pharaoh, brings them out by the waters. And God tells them to take his rod and put it by the waters there, smelt the waters, and the water's going to turn to blood. So Pharaoh turns around and he calls his enchanters and his magicians. And they come out. And they managed to do the same thing. But yet, God's blood stayed. And the waters turned into blood. The rivers turned into blood. The fish died. Their pots turned into blood. Their drinking cups turned into blood. Then they said, okay, we'll just dig another well. They start digging the well. Guess what they found? More blood. So once again, God won. Next. God does. Um, God uh, sends Moses down to Pharaoh again, and he says, "Okay, this time I want you to uh, stretch your rod over, uh, over by the river, and frogs will come out." So Moses walks by. He takes his rod and goes down by the river, and frogs start popping out. So Pharaoh calls his enchanters and magicians, and they do the same thing. But God's frogs keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And it fills their houses and their cupboards and their pots and their pans. And everywhere they looked, there was frogs everywhere. And they wouldn't go away. So finally, Pharaoh gets tired of these frogs and he says, all right, well, go talk to Moses and see if their God can get rid of these frogs. So they do and they say, okay, tomorrow God will remove the frogs. And then tomorrow comes and all the frogs depart out of the houses and leave their pots and their stoves and their ovens there everywhere. And they all clean out and then they stack them up in piles. The plague was over, except apparently there was a 
smell that came out that probably wasn't most aromatically pleasing from this whole thing. Okay? Then finally, Pharaoh still isn't willing to work with them, so God sends Moses down again, and he tells them to stretch out his rod and smite the dust. So Moses smites the dust, and millions of lice come flying out, covers the Egyptians, covers their animals, just covers everywhere. So Pharaoh calls his magicians and enchanters again, and this time they couldn't do it. Nothing happened. They couldn't produce this one at all. But something interesting happens. His enchanters look and they say, you know what? This is the very hand of God. God's doing this. So anyway, the millions of lice cover the lands. Um, And then God told Moses, Go down again. Pharaoh's not willing to uh, let the people go. And this time, he brings a plague of flies. Millions and millions of flies, they come, and they just, swarms of them, they fill everywhere, and the flies are all over the place. Now, what's interesting at this point is here's all these plagues going on. If I understand it right, the Egyptians are back in the land of Goshen watching these things, and they're doing okay. They're doing just fine. They're watching this. Pharaoh's getting sick of the flies. He finally can't take it anymore. And he says, same thing. Go get Moses. Tell him, come back here. I want these flies gone. So he says, okay, tomorrow, let him do it a little bit. I'll get rid of the flies. So he comes, and tomorrow, the flies disappear. It says every single fly left the land of Egypt. I'm convinced some of those flies made it over here to Pennsylvania. Still here. Next, God sends another plague against the cattle. And their cattle and their beasts, they start dying one by one by one. They're dropping out in the fields, and they're all dying. Now the Israelites are still sitting back in the land of Goshen, watching these things, watching what God's doing. Their cattle's doing fine. And they're watching God just pouring out all these things against the Egyptians, and they're being protected. God's watching over them. He's keeping his promise. Their animals are dying. The smells are over there. Their skin is probably still itching and all these things, and they're scratching and the Israelites are doing just fine. They're watching God pour his fury out against the Egyptians. So finally God sends Moses over again to deal with Pharaoh. And he goes to the furnaces. He takes ashes and he throws them up in the air. And he says, okay. And as the ashes spread out, they started to grow boils. Any living animals were getting boils. The Egyptians were full of boils and all these things. And Pharaoh still wouldn't change his mind. So finally God sends a plague of hail. Grievous hail, it says. Hail came down and just rained all over the land of Egypt. And it destroyed any greenery out there, any crops that they had, their corn, their wheat, their barley, uh, their flax was all wiped out. All the vegetation was completely destroyed by all the hail and the fire. And it was so intense that uh, they couldn't take it anymore. And God calls upon, um, I'm sorry, Pharaoh calls upon uh, Moses again. And he says, hey, go back there and tell God to stop this. I can just imagine the guys that had to go through that to go over there and get Moses uh, through all the hail and stuff. But anyway, um, and here's the Israelites again watching all this go on. They're not getting pulverized by hail. They're not getting pulverized by this fire coming down. They still have green crops out there. Their animals are still out in the fields eating. Pharaoh finally comes to his senses temporarily. And he says... I've sinned 
and God is righteous. But it didn't stick for very long. Pharaoh goes right back at it. So God sends another plague of locusts this time. Just black swarms of locusts came all over the land. And anything left that was knocked over on the ground or any new sprouts that came up, they ate everything. Every ounce of green that they could find was completely disappeared. It was all gone. Not one piece of green was left. And then God finally clears up the locusts. And God sends another plague. He sends a plague of darkness. He made the land something I don't know if any of us can even experience, but so dark they said you could feel it. So dark that in the middle of the day, they would standing before each other, and my understanding is they couldn't even see each other. And Pharaoh's at you. Oh, yeah, that's my eye. Total darkness. Couldn't see anything. The Egyptians are sitting back there, and they've got a nice, bright, sunny day going on. They're enjoying it. Okay? Finally, God sends one last plague. The angel of death. And God provided a way for the Israelites that when this angel of death comes by, that was supposed to destroy all the firstborn children, that every one of them would live. None of them would be hurt. So the Egyptian, I'm sorry, yeah, the Israelites prepared for this. They got ready. And that night, the angel of death comes over. And as the Israelites sat in their home, being protected, thanking the Lord that their firstborn children were alive, they heard the wail coming out across the lands of all the Egyptians who lost their children. And then finally, they're getting ready to go. God says, pack up, it's time to go. Pharaoh comes over and says, get out of here. Just, I want you gone. So quickly, millions, I'm not sure how many, maybe somebody knows the number, is over, is over three million that I know of Israelites start packing up and leaving. And as they left, though, they didn't just walk out alone. They knew God was with them. Because God gave them a cloud, a pillar of cloud by the day, fire by night to watch as God led them. And God directed them where he wanted to go. And God was right there. So they follow this pillar of cloud by day, and by night the pillar of fire, and then God leads them up to the point of where they're going to set up camp here, right in front of the sea. And as they're sitting in front of this big sea, over on each side, from my understanding, with these really rugged mountains that are about impassable, very hard to get through. And they're camped out here, and all of a sudden the dust in the distance comes out. Pharaoh's at it again. He changed his mind, and here he comes racing after the Egyptians. And they look, they see the dust coming up, they hear the noise, the thunder of his horses coming. And God turns around and he takes the cloud and he puts a pillar of fire right behind them. Then God turns around and he opens up the Red Sea, asks Moses to walk up. And the Red Sea opens up, he dries up the ground, and God says, go. And they walk through on dry ground through the middle of the sea, totally protected from Pharaoh's army. No question God was watching over them, protecting them, leading them. And they finally get going through the scene. At one point, God brings the fire down and the Egyptians start racing through. And they're coming through the middle of this. And all of a sudden, their wheels start falling off and they can't go anywhere. And when the last Israelites climb out of the sea, God pulls it together. And they're destroyed. And Israel looks back and they say, gone. Our enemy is gone. And they praised God. They worshiped God. I want to read this to you. Exodus fourteen thirteen, And Moses said to the people, this is when the Egyptians were closing in on them, and he says, Fear ye not, stand still, 
and see what the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them no more forever. God shall fight for you, and he shall hold you peace. And God does it. There's no question. And the Egyptians are praising the Lord for what God had done, rejoicing for God's protection. And then as they begin traveling, they become thirsty and need water. And they're out there where there's no water. And God tells Moses, well, go up and take your rod and tap on the rock and water's going to come out of nowhere. And water flooded out of the rock. And they had plenty of water. Well, then they needed food. And God provided food for them. He provided manna for them. He provided quail for them. God met all their needs. The Israelites watched every bit of this. The Israelites Israelites watched God's mercy and how merciful God was being to them. They saw his protection. They saw his provision. And they saw his love. And then finally, as God leads them, he gets Mount Sinai. And I just want to read these words again. That God speaks to them at this point. God speaks these words and he says, I am the Lord thy God which bought thee out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. And then he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not make any graven image or likeness or anything that is in heaven above or in the earth that is under the water of the earth, and thou shalt not bow thyself down to them nor serve them. And they get there, and Moses now goes up, and he's spending some time with God up there, some extended time. Um... Let me read one more verse here, I think. Yeah. I want to read this too. And they heard this just just before that. Exodus 19. God says, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and bought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine. You see, he had the authority to say that, didn't he? Everything's mine, and I want to make you a people that worships me. What was he doing? He was appealing to their heart to say, would you do it out of your own heart to worship me? It's your choice. I can't make you is what he's saying. I won't make you. If he could, he wouldn't have to say this. He would just do it. But I can't force you to do it. But I want you to out of your own heart. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. And these, I'll stop there. That's what God spoke to them. Moses now goes up, and he's spending some extra time up on the mountain there. And amazing transformation comes here. Um, Exodus 32. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. And they come up to Aaron and they say, Make us gods. Aaron, would you please make us some gods that we can say shall go before us? And Aaron, I don't know why, says, Okay, bring me all your jewelry and all your gold. And Aaron gets the fire, and he melts us down. And Aaron gets out his tools, 
and he comes up with something that looks like this. And he says, this is the God that delivered you out of Egypt. Okay? I don't get it. But I have to ask my question, and I've asked myself this question a million times. What if I were one of the Israelites? Where would I be? Would I be like Moses? Would I be like Joshua, Caleb, that came through this loving God? Or would I fall in with the others? I mean, in my mind, it's no question. But I always wonder with that many people how this actually happened. And they made this golden calf here, and they said, this is the God that delivers out of Egypt. But then they make one other huge mistake. Aaron builds an altar for this thing. And then they get up in the morning and they set up on the altar and they rise up and they have a feast unto it. They offer burnt offerings and they offer peace offerings to the golden cow, the golden calf. That worship that they were giving was supposed to go to God. That was God's worship. That's what God wanted from them, to rise up in the morning and give him the glory. But instead, they're looking at this thing and that's where it's going. They offer him the, the worship and the praise. Again, spiritual adultery. Now, you probably noticed one thing that I didn't mention through this whole journey of the Israelites was about their fussing and complaining. It was continual. They continually complained about everything going on. They saw the mighty hand of God working. They knew God was delivering them. And yet they just complained and they fussed. You know what happens through that. But, you see... They saw God's power. They saw God's mercy. They saw God's, God's long-suffering. But for some reason, they're looking through a dirty window. They weren't seeing God clearly. For some reason, they were looking through a window in their heart, and their understanding was darkened. They weren't seeing God the right. Otherwise, they'd never be in that spot. If they were seeing God properly, they wouldn't have done that. Look over Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It says here, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in righteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God showed it unto them. You see, God showed them everything that they needed to follow God, but their own will, their own choice drove them this way. It says, For the invisible things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even the eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Even if God didn't do all those miracles through the plagues and lead them the way he did and destroy Pharaoh the way he did and his army, just looking around at nature, God says that should have been enough to prove to you that I am God. Because God's fingerprints are over everything. There's nothing here that God didn't make. And God says, through that man, that's enough to understand. But God went far and above those things. And he says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. That fits right there. And their foolish hearts darkened. So that, in one way, explains how they can go from seeing God doing this to turning around and wanting this calf. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And change the glory of the 
uncorruptible God into an image made to corruptible man. And the birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things stop there. God gave those two commandments. There's no other God besides me. And never make an image and worship it, bow down to it, and serve it. And yet there's this trigger in our hearts that if we don't follow God with a clear conscience, with a clear window of seeing who God really is, our hearts can become darkened and we get weird. The things of God don't make sense. When we see God as the creator of all things, everything, the author and the finisher of your faith, the God who makes all things exist, all things operate, the God who deserves the right to be the Lord of your life, and the God who is the complete authority of your life, and the God who created you to worship and obey him in everything you'll be coming to his image. Um, There's a verse I was thinking of. I can't bring it up. Sorry. Um, When we see God for who he is, we will become into his image and his standards will become your standards and your faith will become his faith. You see, God created us to become into his image. But when we don't want to serve God, what we do is we actually make God in the image we think he is. The devil loves to flip things backwards and he loves to mess things up and confuse everything. We're supposed to have God in the image of who God is, and we're to become that image. When we don't do that, we actually turn around and we make God in our image to satisfy our needs. So are we creating God in our own image? We do things. God's okay with that. I know he is. God doesn't have a problem with this. We hear this all the time, don't we, from people. I know the Bible says this, but... I actually think this is the way it is. And this, all we've done is created God in our own image. We live in a world where you can make God out of anything you want. You can make God to be anything you want him to be. I don't advise it at all. But I've heard and seen some of the preaching that's going on out there. It's atrocious. I mean, it is so far away from anything that has to do with the gospel. It's amazing. You can make God out of anything you want, even a golden calf, if that's what you want to do. In closing, I want to look at Acts chapter 17. We're thousands of years ahead of the Israelites here, time-wise. Um... Verse 16, Paul goes to Athens. As Paul goes to the city of Athens and he's walking through, says, his spirit was stirred in him 
when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogues with the Jews and with the devout persons in the market and daily with them that he meet with them. And certain philosophers of the Eucretians and of the Stoics encountered him and said, What will this babbler say? Other some, he seems to be a settler forth of strange gods, because he preaches unto Jesus and the resurrection. So he goes in there and he begins speaking the things of Christ and they're looking at him like, what language are you speaking? We don't get it. They couldn't understand what Paul is getting at. And they have all these gods there. They said, you're bringing strange things to our ears. Okay? But Paul, Mars Hill, you know the story. He addresses them in an issue. He says, when I come through and I hear your devotions and I hear your worship, you're worshiping all these other gods, gods that are made out of silver and gold and all the things you've done, but you have this one inscription over there that says, to the unknown God. See how God won't let anybody go? He's always right there. And Paul says that to them. I won't read it all, but God says, this God that you don't know is right here. He's right next to you. All you need to do is believe. To the unknown God whom you ignorantly worship, I want to declare him unto you. And he goes on to talk about the God that made the world and all things that you're seeing. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. But he doesn't dwell in the temples you've made with your hands. You won't find him there. Neither can he be worshipped with man's hands. He's made all one through the blood of Christ. All nations that dwell therein in the face of the earth. That you might seek him. God says this is the unknown God that you don't know. It's called Jesus Christ. You've heard his name. It says, for in him we live. And move and have our being. You see how Paul's saying, God's infiltrated my life. He's everything. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by the art of man's device. But at then in 30 it says, In the times of this ignorance God winked at. He says, But now... He's addressing them at this point in time. Now God's commanding that all men repent. Because God hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. In other words, all your false gods won't do any good then. God's not going to use your gods that you made as the standard. It'll be who God is. He will judge the world in his righteousness by that man whom he ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And then it says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear this matter again. Paul departed amongst them, but it says, how be it? Certain men clave unto him and believed. How do you see yourself there this morning? Where do you find yourself in that? Are you the one that mocks? Okay. I know they say we've got to do all these things the Bible says and the church says this, but I don't, I don't. You mock it. Or salvation. I don't, I don't really care about salvation right now. You know, you just mock things. I hear it in the world all the time. I was in a home the other day and I, 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 I bought up about God's in control. 
And I'll tell you, the tension you can feel in that room just was about as cold as that darkness that I told you about. The wife looked away, had to walk out of the room. Mocking God. Or do we hear and dismiss? I hear the things you're talking about, but uh, later. I'll worry about it later. It's not really important. I don't have the time. Or one of the ones that clings to the truth. I want to know who God is. I want to know who God is and I want to follow Him. Is God making you into His image or are you making Him into your own image? Do you live for the God for who He is? Or do you live for the God who you made Him out to be? Just like the Israelites, God has given every one of us and done everything He can to show us who he really is. The question is, what are we going to do with it? So this morning, is your window clear? Or do you need to get on your knees and clear away some of the things that block your vision of who God really is? God bless you. Thank you.